Welcome to episode 246 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Each time I kick off a new mastermind cohort, I start with a round of one-on-one calls with members. From my experience, this is a critical step that is often skipped. Well, at least that's been the case for the masterminds that I've paid to join. It's through these conversations that I learn what members hope to experience while being in a community of like-minded entrepreneurs. I also start to see patterns that will help me better facilitate the mastermind sessions. It's through these conversations that I started to get a better sense of who my ideal client is for these masterminds. They tend to have really, really big ideas of what they want to accomplish with their businesses. What they don't have is a clear sense of how they are going to create and iterate new products or services with lots of input from their ideal customers. There is usually a desire to figure it all out before sharing with the world what they had to offer. By the end of that first coaching session, they are clear on two primary goals for the mastermind program. One goal would help them build their platform and professional network so they could get the right referrals. The second goal would be to identify new sources of revenue with help from their ideal customers and actually launch the new offering this year, not wait two years tinkering with the idea in their heads and then spring it on the market. Too often, when entrepreneurs have a good idea, we keep it to ourselves and try to, let's say, perfect it. The danger is spending months or even years building a product or service only to discover that no one's interested because it doesn't meet a clear need in the marketplace. Don't wait years to test out your theory. Start with research calls and then launch a minimally viable product to gather feedback from participants. Doing this takes time, but it builds the runway that makes launching your new revenue stream so much easier. It also happens to be a great way to strengthen connections with people in your network. Your challenge this week, make a list of 12 to 15 likely prospects. Reach out to ask them to have a 20-minute chat with you so you can learn about their experience the problem you're trying to solve. Don't give away tons of free advice and don't pitch your grand plan. Listen, Ask questions, find out what their symptoms are and help them realize those symptoms are part of a bigger problem. Position yourself as an advisor who likely knows the solution to this problem they suddenly realize they have. Also, talk to five to eight fellow experts for a better understanding of what is already being offered in the marketplace and what gaps need to be filled. This is the step most entrepreneurs that are experts, they skip this because they know the solution. But if their prospects aren't even aware of the problem, it will be very hard to sell the solution. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, before we dive into this week's interview, I wanted to let you know that in 2022, I'm running a year-long mastermind for like-minded entrepreneurs who want to grow together through the highs and lows of business and life. I'm offering a few early bird specials to provide one-on-one support in 2021, so you're ready to make the most of the opportunity to be in this mastermind when it kicks off next year. Reach out if you'd like to know the details. I'd love to chat and learn about your really big ideas. Email me. Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. Also, a variation of today's story was first published in my weekly email on June 5th, 2018. It's going to be featured in my new book, which will be available later this year. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest helps leaders and organizations thrive with disruption as an expert on digital transformation and leadership. The past two decades, she's been helping people see the future. She is the founder and senior fellow at Altimeter, a disruptive analyst firm acquired in 2015 by Profit. She was named one of the top 50 leadership innovators by Inc. and one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company. Her work includes consulting and serving on boards, including the regional board for YPO, a global network of CEOs. She's a sought-after public speaker and has appeared at events ranging from TED and the World Business Forum to South by Southwest. She has appeared on 60 Minutes and PBS NewsHour and is frequently quoted by the Wall Street Journal, 
the New York Times, USA Today, and the Associated Press. She's the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Open Leadership, and co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Groundswell. Her latest book is the bestseller, The Disruption Mindset. Please join me in welcoming Charlene Lee. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Charlene, thanks so much for joining us from your home office in San Francisco, California. It's a joy to have you here. And in some ways, what great timing. You must be so in demand <laughs> given the work you do. So here's, let's give a little context here. This is a show of Building Strong Networks, and it's all about leadership. So I want to kick us off by sharing how you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I think of leadership as the ability to create change and to bring people together to work together to create that change, make that change happen. Uh, so if you're not creating change, then you're not a leader. You're a manager, which is perfectly fine. But leaders really create change. And so it is not about a title. It is about creating change. Um, and I realized I had the skills to leave when I was in college. Actually, even in high school, when I, I just like to get up and just like say, hey, let's go get things done. Let's go and make something new happen and do things differently. And, um, and, and in college, I realized I was headed towards medical school and I realized I like leading people too much <laughs> to like want to go do more study and then do an individual type of work. Uh, so dropped the pre-med, went into political science and the social sciences and got very active in student activities, even more so than I did in, in high school. And, and that's when I realized that, that leading people, leading and creating that change was a passion of mine. Um, to be aligned with people who have the same values as you, who are on the same mission, have the same purpose as you, is one of the most beautiful gifts that people can give to each other. Gosh, this is, oh, there's so much good stuff in there. I want to unpack a little bit. So first of all, I love this definition being focused on change. If you're not making change, you're just a manager. That's a, probably the simplest and most clear um, definition I've heard in all these years. And it's true that like, it, in some ways you're inspired. We're always talking about you know, leaders inspire. Well, the reason they have to inspire is because they're leading people to something different than the status quo. So very simply put, leadership is about get, moving people towards change. And then um, thank you for, for not just starting it in like, I don't know, I've had some people answer that first question being like, in grad school, and I'm like, what about earlier? So you went back a little bit back to like high school, but now I'm kind of curious because I imagine you've always been who you are. So what were you like in, in, in grad school, sorry, in, sorry, in grad school, in grade school, what were you like on the playground? Were you the kind of kid that, you know, always raised your hand and said yes to opportunities or organized your friends, ran for school office? Like, wh who were you then? Um, as, as a student in, in, in grade school, I, I grew up in the Detroit area and I know you can't see me, but I'm Asian an Asian American. My parents are first generation Chinese and, um, growing up in Detroit, there weren't a lot of people who looked like us. In fact, when I began school, we were the only family of color and the, the school administrator would say to my parents, oh yeah, we're very diverse. We have Irish, Polish, and, and um, uh, Italian in our community. And they're like, they don't look anything like us. So I, I, I grew up being very much an outsider, um, always feeling that I was the only. And um, that really has shaped how I perceive myself, that I always was, I was always causing the disruption. I was always that change element in the room, regardless of who else was in there, even if I was doing nothing. There was an aura of change and disruption just by me being there. Uh, so I think that really shaped me and helped me be comfortable being uncomfortable. It's never it's something that you feel comfortable with doing, but when you're leading, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. And so when leadership opportunities came to me in school, I would, again, I would raise my hand. Like I got nothing to lose. I'm already the, the out person out. So I'll just stick up my hand and just like say whatever's on my mind. Well, I have to so. say that other people would probably have been in a have or, or could be in the same situation and have gone the opposite way, you know, become more of the wallflower. You know, it says a lot about who you are. And I imagine it says a lot about how you were raised, that you were right. given the strength to be the only in the room and to find a way to, to, to live in that uncomfort. And I love this idea that no matter where you went, you were the disruption because... 
because because you know if their idea of diversity was people <laughs> Italian and Irish, I mean that's this, that's it's like horrible. I can't even laugh about it, but it's like it's a ridiculous statement. But I could also imagine it being said. So when you walk in, like clearly that makes a little bit of waves. But then did people accept you as a leader back then? Like when you were raising your hand and offering up ideas, like did that help you attract the kind of people that you wanted to be around? Uh, no, again, I I'd always felt like the ugly duckling. I felt like my friend group were the geeky people. I was one of those band geeks, you know, music geeks. And but I found my tribe, right? It, the, the thing is, I was never completely alone. I always was able to find my tribe, the place where I felt like I belonged and, and to draw those connections in. And fortunately, I was really good at school, too. So I dominated in the classroom. I was completely comfortable in the classroom. Recess was kind of stressful, but as soon as I found my tribe, it was a lot easier because I yeah. had my my group of outcasts too that I could hang out with. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine like knowing what you've accomplished today, that that's the origin story, which is partly why I love hearing people's origin stories because I think, you know, anyone listening, when you hear, I read this like amazing intro, <laughs> like there's like really powerful history that you have um, of, of, of work experience, but when we go dive back into your work, into your personal life, it's like, wow, here's a person who's describing themselves as an ugly duckling. It didn't fit in hanging out with all the misfits. <laughs> it's like, but, but you found your people. And I think there's a way in which that skill set of being able to find your people and figuring out where you fit in probably served you later in life as well. Because you, I imagine you've always remained a disruption. Like you're not a person who has like maintained status quo in your life because of what you've accomplished, I can only imagine that. But at 12, what did you think you were going to be? Did you have a sense of of like a trajectory for your life? Yeah, I thought for sure that I was going to be a doctor. And as I went through high school, the more I realized I wanted to just not be a doctor. I wanted to do an MD, PhD. There were just things I was really curious about and interested in. And so when, when I started school, I had enough AP credits and summer credits and courses that I could start as a sophomore. So I was going to accelerate all the way through this and declared a major in neurobiology, which didn't exist. So not only was I, 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 and I went to Harvard. So not only was I going to Harvard, I was like blowing the doors off of, you know, coming in as a sophomore into Harvard and declaring a special major. So it was, you know, I was the ultimate geek in that way. Uh, you know, science, STEM, and um, really going into the academic research part of it, classically trained pianist. And I got there and I went, wow, there's so many other things I can learn. And I ended up with, uh, in a room full of jocks, you know, like these incredible scholar athletes. And I said, maybe I'll go out for a sport. So I joined a sport, took up sailing and made varsity that freshman fall. So it's just like, you know, just just being in the weirdest, most abnormal places to be. Um, and as you can imagine, sailing is a pretty blue blood sport. Not a lot of people looking like me in sailing, uh, but just loved it, loved the strategy. It was a co-ed sport. So just love the social aspects and then the competitive aspects too. Um, there's a saying about cursing like a sailor. It is absolutely true. So during sailing season, I had a potty mouth and then got rid of it when we came back to being back on land. Um, yeah. But, you know, well, it sounds just, like, yeah. sounds like it, really heady times. Like it was, yeah. And, and I, I think one of the things I've learned from, from then is to never stop learning. And I learned from being in different environments, being out of my comfort zone. I have a mug. Um, I don't have it here. It's in the, it's in the sink, but it says life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And that is sort of my saying for myself and for my family that when things don't go the way you expect, uh, that's what you call experience. Experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And you look for opportunities to learn and grow and stretch yourself, move out of that comfort zone, because it's the only way you keep moving and growing and having impact. Imagine deciding, not just deciding not to move forward with that major and going pre-med, but actually acting on that decision was really hard. I mean, you were, you, you know, you were a young freshman, <laughs> you know, your life experience was like what it had been, right? Like 18, 17, 18 years old. And so you, you had a plan for like a very long time and then you become exposed to all these other options. Was it hard to decide to try something new? 
it was incredibly hard. And, and not only that, again, I'm the daughter of, of immigrants, Asian American immigrants. My father is a doctor, my mother's a nurse. And they saw this incredibly racist community that, um, that said, you know, you, you don't have a racist and misogynistic. And so here I am saying, yeah, I want to go into leadership. And I didn't have the heart to tell them, I think I want to go into business because I didn't even know what that meant. So I said, I'll be a lawyer. They go, okay, professional degree, <laughs> you have some coverage. You know, it could have been engineering, anything, a professional degree. Uh, but when I actually said to them, I want to go into business, they sat me down and like, honey, you know, you're Asian, you're a woman, you're short. There's nobody who looks like you out there. And it was absolutely true. There were zero role models. There were none. The only person I could point to at that time was Elaine Chow, uh, who was then working in, in, in Reagan's uh, cabinet. And, but that was it. There were nobody else that looked like me. And so the thing I said to my parents was like, look, I can type a hundred words a minute. I will always be able to find a job. I will have a roof over my head and food on the table. You know, who knows where I'm going to go, but this is where my passion is. So if nothing else, I'll be an amazing personal assistant to somebody. Although I was pretty sure I wasn't going to do that, but who knew, right? Yeah, um, and so yes. that's, I'm still the black sheep in the family. I'm the only person who's in business. In the <laughs> I mean, not just in business, but, but like an entrepreneur, you're not in corporate America either. You're not like in the golden handcuffs, you know, like you're not like a, a partner somewhere, you know, you're, you're the entrepreneur who created your own business. And that, that, you know, in an environment of like medical professionals and law degrees is, is very different. And like all the cultural sort of uh, pieces of this that you're describing, I can only imagine like yeah, but being I, I started age. my company when I was 42. You know, I wasn't a spring chicken. I had Got two it. young kids, age eight and 10. Um, my husband is a serial entrepreneur. So his income goes up and down. So I was the, the, the breadwinner, the steady breadwinner. I was a person who came back with the health insurance, right? And two mm -hmm. young kids and started a business in that. And this is in 2008. And when I made this decision, fortunately, I got clients right very, very quickly because then the recession hit. Yes. And I got really, really lucky in that way that I had that, 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 um, that cushion to, to be able to carry me uh, in through those early days. And, um, and, and fortunately, I happened to cover a space, social media, social technologies, digital transformation, that everybody wanted to know more about as the recession hit because, oh, we can use this free stuff to replace our paid marketing that we have no money to do, but we still need to do marketing. So everybody wanted to know how to do this. And we were literally the only game in town. So we so really- in, What were you doing for the 20 years in between then? Were you in like a corporate environment, working your way up or- Yeah, I worked, um, I worked in, in uh, consulting for three years, business school for two, and then- another five so years um, doing uh, uh, newspaper publishing. Went to Silicon Valley in 1993 because I thought the internet was going to impact newspapers and I wanted to be at the forefront of that disruption. So that was my first disruptive move coming out of Harvard Business School and going to a newspaper. Like people thought I was crazy. And yeah, again, I, mean, I wanted to be where the future and disruption was going to be creating opportunities. And then worked at Forrester for 10 years. Happy uh, hunky dory at Forrester. Really happy there. Um, until I wrote my first book and realized I didn't want to go back into this this really constrained space of being an analyst covering one area. I wanted to have more intellectual freedom to go pursue the things and the questions I wanted to answer. You know, disruption is a buzzword right now, but it wasn't when you went to the newspaper and Silicon Valley to try to figure out how this was all going to play out and you know, we, even the word futurist is, is popping up now more and more and um, innovation and all these words. But it sounds like you, you kind of had an edge on all of us. Why, why do you think you were drawn to something that almost didn't exist? Like it, it was not a, even consulting. I mean, the, the era that you were doing consulting was still kind of a rare, rare thing in that form. So why were you drawn to that? And particularly given that you were sort of brought up to, you know, ch check the boxes, like, piano lessons and you know what I mean? Like go through the, there's a, there's a ch checklist that you should do in life to safely succeed. 
But you were like, no, 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 no. I'm going to go where there's like edges and I have to explore. It's like, where do you think that comes from? Um, I grew up in a very religious household, um, fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. And there's a very strong evangelistic um, uh, bent to it. But more than anything else, there is the sense that you individually can have a mark on the world. You individually can make a difference in people's lives. And, and so and then I also just saw just a deep-rooted optimism that the future could be so much better if we could just potentially see what that future could look like. And so I would imagine I can see all these problems in the world and I just thought, how can we solve them and just systematically see where the patterns were? So in business school, I was trying to figure out my, my original plans fell through. I was going to go back overseas, do economic development. And I realized I like being home back in the U.S. I was really homesick from living overseas for two years. And um, so I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> so it took the time to say, what are the new changes that are coming out? Because I was thinking I'm coming out, I'm going to have a career for three, four, five decades. You know, where do I want to be? So I said, what's the biggest thing that's changing? Because anytime things are changing, that's where you want to be. That's the places where the opportunities are the greatest. So I ran towards the internet, said, what is the internet looking like? And I did a value chain analysis. It's hardware, software, pipes, and then content. Interviewed on all of them, researched them, realized I knew nothing about the first three. They were big, huge organizations, but content was going to be the thing that really changed. It was the thing that um, people would be using in a very different way. So look at television, magazines, radio, newspapers, like, oh, newspapers, print, texts, first thing to move. So let's go there. And newspapers are traditionally very hidebound and also very purpose-driven. It's the fourth estate. It's the voice of democracy. So I said, this is in the, the business model was going to be really challenged. So I could see all this and went, I want to go there. And ended up at the San Jose Mercury News at a front row seat to the changes happening in the internet. I knew the Yahoo guys when they were graduate students at Stanford University. My friends were working at Netscape. So it's, um, I just I got really lucky in being in the right place at the right time. So incredibly lucky. Well, I want to counter that it was uh, maybe a little bit of luck with a lot of forethought and initiative and follow through on your part, because others might have thought about great ideas and not taken any action or just follow the path of least resistance that was laid out in front of them. Um, so it's really, it's really inspiring to hear you saying how you were trying to place yourself in a, in a, in sort of a, the intersection of where the, where that extreme, the disruption and the innovation was going to be happening. What year is it that you headed to the Bay and, or headed to Silicon Valley? It was 1993, the spring of 1993. Okay. So I, I graduated, uh, I started, I was in my second year of college, I guess. So I'm just trying to place this because I, I mean, by then I had touched a Mac. <laughs> I had successfully sent an email, but you know, like, and I was like relatively tech savvy. Um, that's so interesting how how much like changed so quickly. Around that time when I was 20, my dad told me about this article he'd read in like the, the Globe magazine that I would have four careers between 20 and 40. And in my mind, I translated that to I needed to have transferable skills. And then I had this realization that some of the things I would do in life didn't exist yet. Like it was such a like, it just hit me. It just was like a wow, you know, and he it was like a throwaway comment. He, he doesn't remember this guy. I mean, it was a big moment in my life for him to point that out to me. It also made me not afraid to change. And I switched to sort of my, like, I'm going to be, a, I'm going into entrepreneurism, like full time. This is it right before I turned 40. Cause I was like, I still got time for one more. I got to squeeze it in. <laughs> so um, and when the pandemic hit, I was a speaker and a coach, and I was teaching people how to network at conferences for over a decade. That was my talk. That was my topic. That was my book. That was my TEDx. That was my podcast. Yeah, there's no at currently <laughs> at events. We're on. And so I had to make a shift, and I tried to figure out how to add value, and I had reinvented myself quite nicely in the last year as a virtual event design consultant and an executive Zoom producer. So... I, I think I have learned later in life all the virtues of what you're extolling about looking for the innovation because I felt my way in and it very much felt like, um, particularly in the beginning, like a Wild West environment in the first 
six months of the pandemic around online events, virtual networking, like what is this all going to look like? And, you know, now I think there's, there's players that have staked out different corners of that land. <laughs> We're all like, you know, have our little booths up trying to talk people over, come here, come here. But in the beginning, we were just no one knew. And you were like purposely looking for that kind of space, the energy of the unknown. And do you think you were better prepared? I mean, I don't think anyone could have like fully foreseen the pandemic happening and, and unfolding quite as it did. Maybe you did. And I'd love to know that. Uh, and I'd like to know how you pick your lottery tickets then. <laughs> but like, do you think you just had, you're better prepared for that given kind of how you, I guess your worldview almost of, of how you approach living? Uh, yeah. Um, again, I try to look for that, that discomfort every day so that when discomfort comes to me versus me seeking it out, I'm just more resilient to it and also anti-fragile. Um, the idea of anti-fragile is not that I just resist from breaking, but I go stronger. I grow stronger with every single bounce. And so um, I, I love that idea of being anti-fragile. And so I try to do that with, with all aspects of my life. And, and most recently on a physical level, it's like, how far can I push it? Like the, the discomfort level or just the discipline around it. So work in progress, definitely. But um, just on all aspects of my life, you know, where are the ed rough edges and how can I just get, get be more disciplined around that? But when the pandemic hit, I mean, I could see it coming. I could just see it coming, just being very attuned to what's happening in Asia. And I'm a, I just thought we were just crazy that we couldn't see it and that how how important it was to beat back the curve. And it put me into a huge funk. Uh, but I remember back in January, I was talking to a bunch of other leaders. I was at a leader networking event. And this wonderful woman, Julie Carrier, came up to me at the cocktail party and said, you know, instead of saying like, so where are you from? What do you do? She goes, how do you serve the world? And I went, oh, how do I serve the world? And I could tell her my purpose is, which is to help leaders thrive with disruption by helping them see the future. But was I really living that purpose every single day? Was I waking up in the morning and saying, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is what my purpose is. And being really clear, who are the people I'm serving? And have I, at the end of the day, have I done a good job? Have I done my best to serve them? And, um, and so when the pandemic hit, it threw me right on my backside, for about two weeks was just in a total world of grief, thinking about the pain that was going to come, how much our world was going to change. Um, and, and it was like um, Cassandra's curse. You know, I felt like I was seeing this and nobody was listening. There was nothing we could do. And then after about two weeks, I just kept repeating my mantra. I'm here to help people thrive with disruption. This is the biggest disruption we ever have. I started live streaming. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I set up a bad camera. Half the time the microphone wasn't on, but it was a way to get the message out to help people to see this. And we were all stuck at home with nothing to do anyways. So really connected, um, found that um, that calling to do that. So again, just pushing the, the edges for this. Um, yeah. But okay. yeah, that purpose helped me dig out of my hole. Like there was, yeah. there was a thing that I clung to. It's hard when you, um, I mean, I had a sense as of around January, February, that it was, that something was happening because I listened to Rachel Maddow. Honestly, that is like the only reason because nowhere else was anyone talking about it. And I still went to an event. Like I drove, I didn't fly, but I drove to an event in February, even though I had this awareness, you know, it was sort of like funny how he was like, well, it's not going to come right here. Right. Like we all, it's there. And then it's like, well, it's over in Seattle or, you know, it's like, these imaginary boundaries that like no one cares about, particularly when you're a virus. Um, so this illusion of safety was still with me to a point, but on March 9th, I had like a, okay, this is happening, happening. And I definitely hit that. Like, well, like now what? Because based on my livelihood, just all the, everything stopped. Right. I'll, I'll, because anything immediate was being um, canceled because they couldn't even reimagine it yet online. March 11th, I had a pure mastermind call and I got a kick in the butt <laughs> and they were like, you don't just think about networking happening at events. You know, you've built up a thriving global network. It's not like you just go to events to meet people. You just do it all the time. And I was like, I just want to figure out how to show up and add value. And they were like, well, then go write something, go create something. And so the next day I wrote nine ways to network in a pandemic and 
posted it and shared it and, you know, got pretty good response, but particularly because it was so quick, right? It's like a, people were like, that's what I'm looking for. And then March 13th, I had my first virtual happy hour because that was one of the ideas. And I thought Thursday night at eight or eight o'clock at night, I had the idea, I should probably try one of these. And I got a few people who said they'd come. And so people have asked me, why do you have it Fridays at five o'clock Eastern? And I said, because I had the idea Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern <laughs> and I'm impatient. And so that was my next available time slot. And I've, I've held, hosted that every day, sorry, every day, every Friday since March 13th, 2020. And it launched an entirely new business with multiple revenue streams and multiple ways of adding value. And, and it, you know, that like, just trying to do the next thing, just trying to do the next thing. And if I think back to the first six weeks, it was just such a whirlwind of an, I, I wasn't trying to make money. I was just trying to show up and add value. Right. And it, it ends up being, that's the way you get out of your funk, right? Like you yeah. serve others. Serving. I mean, people, um, I, I, I would do a lot of work with college students and high school students and people early in their careers and like, okay, so how do I be successful? How do I start the right business and everything? You know, how do I follow my passions? I'm like, please do not follow your passions. It's like the worst advice somebody could give to you. Because if you're really going to do something worthwhile and meaningful, it's going to be really hard. And you're going to be sitting there going, this is not my passion. This is not what I signed up for. I'm in the muck, right? It is awful. And, you know, you know, writing a book, not fun. In fact, it's like soul sucking to write a book. <laughs> it's like a miserable experience. Um, but it's wonderful to have written a book. You know, the writing of the book, not so fun. Um, and so find places where you feel like you can be useful, where you can really make an impact, where you can create that change. And it's going to be meaningful to you. And especially if you are going to be able to practice excellence. So places where you can be excellent and places where you can be useful. And that should be the matrix of how you think about things. Mm. So there are places where you can be useful, but you're not so excellent. So you go, maybe I could do that and contribute, but I don't feel really good about it because I'm not competent at it. I'm not excellent at it. Then skills and training can be there. Or you may have something where you're really good at, but frankly, it's not very useful to the world. So like, how can you figure out ways to tune that so it is actually making a difference? Uh, I'll give you one statistic. Uh, business formation is up 43% this year over last year. That means more people are starting up businesses. And this is true for independent contractors, people who are doing gig work, for example, but also true of people who are filing LLCs and corporations where there's the intent to hire people. It's up 43%. And it validates the idea that in the midst of chaos, there is always opportunity. Needs don't go away in a disruption. They just shift. And the opportunities come when you can identify where that shift is. So constantly looking for how you can help, where are the places where things are not being met, needs are not being met. Um, and my, my biggest advice to people is go follow a working parent around for a day. Even better, follow a working mother around for the day. Solve one of their problems and you will be a billion dollar business. So, I mean, that's just, a, that's just yeah. an example, right? It is not about yeah. your problems. It's about looking around the world and saying, where are the problems in our organizations, in our communities, in our society? And then digging down deep to say, what are the things that I have within my areas of control, within my network to be able to make a difference to those people's lives? That's where the opportunity is. I really appreciate that. I think it also, it's about thinking expansively around what value and what experience you have that you can bring. You know, I, I didn't actually think of myself as an MC prior to the pandemic. I didn't see the events. I've been a professional speaker for years. I know how to facilitate out of a box, you know, like I, but I'd never, I'd never anywhere. My website is about to relaunch, but my, my current website doesn't say anything about it. Like, it's funny how when suddenly I was like, oh, I should name this in a way that other people could recognize what I can offer. Oh, well then I need to claim the term MC. And I had this like, Oh, I guess I've been doing that. Like, it, you know, same thing, facilitator. I never advertised that I was a facilitator before. This got thrown in situations where I had to do it. You know, so, so interesting how much of this has been me having to sort of readjust my identity, my sense of who I was in the world so that I could be noticed. But 
it wasn't actually that I had to learn a lot of new things. Um, some of it was just a shift in my own definition of what I did and who I who I did it for. And I, I don't know. It's it. In some ways, what I'm doing today feels inevitable because it's really a nice blur of all the things I've ever been passionate about. And it's like you said, it's that you know figuring out something new, which is definitely an ex- like this is the entrepreneur part, right? Like, I like that things are new and have to be figured out. Um, but I also know there were some people who hit the brake and some people who hit the gas, right? So we're describing, you know, you, you paused for all of two weeks, which felt like an eternity, but then you took off, right? But there are people months in who still had, we're still saying things like, well, you know, well, we'll get back to, you know, we'll, we're going to get back to that again. It'll be, uh, we'll be in that. And like, they sort of were clinging to the old. So that's like, is there a mindset piece that's really part of this in your in your research and how you sort of approach this? Yeah, absolutely. That we talk about is change in growth mindset versus the static mindset, um, where you don't you're not comfortable with change. And and it fundamentally comes down to this: we feel disrupted when we don't know where we sit in the world, and we will not move forward until we feel more comfortable and we feel like we're safe. We are feeling like we understand how the power structures work. And, and so much of it comes down to power. So like, how do I relate to you? Where are we in our relationships? Are we equal? Are we not? And, we, and, and leadership is simply a relationship, right? And, and uh, when you see organizations going through transformations and disruptions, the reason why it's so hard is because the power is being shifted around. Everyone was like, okay, so where do I sit now? I don't know where I sit, so I'm going to say exactly where I am and wait it out. Hope that it goes back to where it was before and people give up trying to push against the permafrost layer inside an organization. Uh, and so what happens for people who don't want to move is because they don't know where they're going to. And they don't know what that, that future looks like. And so what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be safe? Am I going to have my my friends, my places there? How is it going to look? So they won't go. Even if that old world doesn't exist anymore, they can put a paint a picture around themselves that it still exists. So people keep asking, when do we go back to normal? When are we going to be able to go back to a place where we don't have to wear masks again? And I'm like, I don't know, but I don't think it's going to look anywhere like it before. And I go, I think mask wearing is here to stay. If nothing else, just protect me from all the germs that are out there. Let <laughs> alone COVID. I don't want your code. I don't want your, you know, cough over there. Just like, just keep the mask on in a public space. So I, I think, I think the norms are completely shifted around. And so yeah. the sooner those people who are so clinging to the old, if we can paint a picture that pulls them to the future they're going to be so much more willing to let go of that tent pole that there's this clinging to. A tent pole to a tent that's collapsing around them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such a visual. So this is part of leadership then, is painting the picture of the change that's possible so that people who are feeling very, very stuck and not psychologically safe are able to start to imagine their place in a new world. And that's the shift that, that would then help them get unstuck and start to live into what that looks like and and probably will be different than even what they thought but they'll start to i mean part of my part of my sea legs this last year was just being very comfortable not knowing how things were going to roll being very like part i i am a business coach business growth strategist i coach entrepreneurs i wear many hats i just learned the term multi-hyphenate i am that so I basically treated myself like a client. I had a moment where I was like, what would I tell someone? And I was like, well, I would tell them to, to pilot something. And that's how I piloted something in May of 2020. <laughs> like, it just was like, well, that's like, okay, then just do it. And there wasn't really a downside. There wasn't like a failing because everything was disrupted. So in some ways it felt easier, particularly in the first few months to try out really odd. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? type of activities because not doing anything was worse like than trying something that didn't stick in my book. But that required a level of competence and confidence. And the confidence comes not from knowing that it's going to work. It comes from knowing that regardless of whatever the outcome is, you're going to be okay. 
there's a difference, right? We think of confidence as like, okay, you feel so confident, you know, you're going to get out there and, you know, just kill it, right? And I tell people, I have fallen off a stage when I've given a speech. You know, I literally stepped off the back of the stage, not realizing where I was and just fell off from view. Like, where did you go all of a sudden, right? Pretty darn embarrassing. Having to crawl back onto the stage. Like, I'm okay, everyone. Let's continue on here. Talk about blowing the moment, right? So once you've fallen off the stage, you have tremendous confidence that you can recover from anything, right? Um, so it's, again, I think what you felt back in May is I got nothing to lose. If I land on my face, it'll be okay. I'll just dust myself off and like, hey, it's COVID. <laughs> you just keep going. And here's the thing. Many leaders act as if whatever it is that the decision they're going to go into is irreversible. And 99% of the decisions we make are reversible. We can always change our mind and say to people, that didn't work. We're going to go back and try something else instead. And the reason why we don't do that is because we feel shame. We have this judge handing over us and saying, what happens? How will we look? How will we be perceived? How will our power relationships be shifted? Will I lose credibility if I do that? And so that is a mind shift change that is so difficult to make that I have to be perfect. And especially for people who are underrepresented, who are the onlys in the room, you do you use every ounce of your energy and your psychic um, powers to just be in the room, to be included. Everyone else may feel you're included, but if you don't feel included, you're using so much of that energy. And so when you're having, you feel like everything you do has to be perfect because you can't risk your reputation because it could be a strike against you and representative of your race or gender. That's a lot of heavy load to carry. So I look at transformation, digital transformation. I look at DEI efforts. I look at all those return back to work, remote, everything, all in the same bucket. It's a challenge to us as leaders today to say, how are we going to lead in this really volatile environment? We've got to keep so many things in mind, juggle not only the strategy and the vision for the future, but understand all these weird dynamics of power shifting and back and forth. And if I'm an older white man, I'm sitting there going, I am so not equipped to have these conversations around DEI. <laughs> it's like, I've never experienced what it's like to be the, the subject of all this bias, to not feel that the world is a meritocratic place, to feel like it's not fair. How do I even begin to have a conversation around that from my privileged point of view? So it's, it's a really tough place to be um, as a leader these days because there's all these multiple dimensions that you have to operate on and no one's talking about it. No one's really acknowledging it and we're not growing as leaders in our capacity to lead in this environment. And so many of them came into this in a different era under different roles where things weren't said out loud. And so they weren't being, they weren't rising in leadership with the understanding that that's a skill set that they had to acquire and, and, and work at. And now they have reached some pinnacle of what they think of as leadership and they're being handed this like new rule book. <laughs> it's like, this is how we have to live now. And they're like, I don't recognize these rules. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I think that's every leader. I mean, think about if you're a brand new leader, you're in your late 20s, early 30s, you're in a leadership position in the very first time. First of all, you're lucky if you get any training. And second of all, who do you see? Who do you model? All these previous leaders. So I think about leadership has gone through a fundamental change over the past year. There was before COVID and after COVID. I mean, after COVID, people were getting onto Zoom. Again, this is an environment, or even just in person if you're an essential worker. And they were asking this one essential question. How are you doing? No, truly, really, how are you doing? And we could see into each other's bedrooms. And there's a level of intimacy that never existed before. And just that simple question, how are you doing? Drove employee engagement through the roof in the, in the middle part of 2020. It was, it was nothing has moved it over decades over the past 20 years until the pandemic hit and it went through the roof. I mean, that makes no sense. We were all stressed. Anxiety is through the roof, but our employee engagement overall is just getting better because we asked the simple question and we're investing the time. And if the success of leadership 
is that you are showing up as the leader your followers need you to be. That is what my definition of success is. This is not about your definition of leadership. Is Are you perceived as being the leader that your team needs you to be in that moment in that time? Wow. Okay. I know we could dig into this even more, but I have one other question for you. Maybe a couple more. But I wanted to actually make sure we didn't like forget to talk about some networking pieces because I, I feel like you've had this really interesting work history. Um, a lot of different companies. You've been building your own business for over a decade through a recession, which is no, well, through at least one, multiple recessions, which is no small feat. Um, so do you have any, like, okay, we think about your sort of inner circle, like close network, and then you've got your second and third layers out. There's like the people that you see once a year at a conference or you work with five years ago. These are people that you'd like. Do you have any ways, uh, habits, philosophies, practices for how you sort of nurture and sustain those broader connections because i know you're going to stay in touch with those like you know inner circle people but do you yeah are you doing anything purposeful or is it like top of mind when they when you come to you you act on it like what's what's your approach to to broadly nurturing your network well first of all invite as many people into my network as possible at the end of my speeches i always hand out my 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 linkedin address my email i give people my email address people think i'm insane but I also know that at the end of it, I say at the end of the speeches, I, here's my email address, please stay in touch. I really do mean it because none of you will, most of you, the vast majority will not email me, but I really am wanting to learn from you. And they're like, yeah, right. And then we email, they'll email me, connect with me on LinkedIn and I actually write back. So, and they're like, whoa, that's, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> so, but that's how I learn. And I make it very clear, that's how I learn. I'm always researching, asking people, what else should I be thinking about? What are your questions? So my network is about me helping people. And the advice I give to people is look at your LinkedIn page. It's not about you. It's about how you help people. Because you're reading your page to learn about how you could connect with them. So you're writing as if you're writing to somebody else who's looking at your page. It's the number one mistake people made. It is not about you. It's about them. That's true of their about page on their website as well. Anytime. It's like, what, you know, how do you help? How yeah. do you help? How are you useful and how are you excellent? I keep coming back to that. And so if that is the foundation of your networking and it just frees you, it's not about your lunch. It's about what you talked about over lunch. Why is it important to the people? And, um, and the, the other thing I would say is you treat your network like gold. I never make blind introductions ever. If there's an introduction, I'm like, okay, I think you could really talk to somebody. Let me check with them to see if it's a good thing. It's a good fit. That tiny little bit of extra time and help makes a huge difference in growing that network in a good and healthy way. Because I definitely don't appreciate having someone dump somebody on me like, hey, here's an intro. I'm like, I don't know why <laughs> this is not a good fit. I can refer them to somebody else who'd be a better fit. Um, because I think there's one thing that we're all coming out of this pandemic is realizing I'm going to spend my time on things that are meaningful, that are important to me. And I need to be able to control that. I need to be able to understand who I want to spend time with and who I want to minimize time with. I want to give a shout out to John Corcoran who helped us connect. Uh, he's, he's really amazing at making those connections and, and the double opt-in type of connection you're describing. Um, and interestingly, we actually were introduced like, very beginning of March and I was getting ready to, to send you the invitation to schedule you. And then like mayhem happened and I like stumbled upon, like I was trying to like find all, all the lost email. There was like, there was almost like a lost emails period in my inbox <laughs> of things unresponded to because it didn't make sense to respond when I had no idea what was happening next and no one else did either. And I'm so grateful that I like, thought to do that exercise and then discover this, this email. So um, things were meant to happen and have these conversations. Um, final question as we're wrapping up here is if we are staying in touch, which I hope so, and we're connecting a year from now, and I'm getting to hear about just how amazing your year has been, I want to know what will we be celebrating a year from now about your work and your life? What are you most looking forward to? I am looking forward to two things. The first one is I hope to have finished and published another book on transformational leadership. 
um, starting working on it right now. As you can hear, I have some some pretty strong ideas what leadership look like. So this is a full-blown leadership book, data, frameworks, and everything. And the second thing is, I, I hope I have, will have moved along my passion project, which is to help women who are underrepresented in corporate America really um, find ways to connect with each other and support each other. My passion, again, is to helping leaders thrive in disruption. And I just feel like um, women of color, un- underrepresented women, are at such a huge disadvantage, the intersectionality that they face, uh, both gender and race together here in corporate America, North America, is just incredible. I have published some of the stats on my blog. Um, Men of color, white women have made tremendous progress. Never want to take that away, but we're not looking at this intersection. So I want to raise their voices, highlight them, support them um, in in multiple ways and fashion. So hopefully we'll have made more progress on that within a year. Well, I can't wait to celebrate that with you. It sounds amazing. How can people find you and follow your work? Uh, you can always come to my website, charlinglee.com. But I think the best place is to connect with me on LinkedIn. Follow me there. Connect with me. It's where I publish all of my work. Um, and it's a great environment for us to network, of course. Absolutely. I will have uh, links to your website and to your LinkedIn and your Twitter on our show notes page at ontheschmooze.com. Charlene, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Charlene. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 246. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes, nearly 250 reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode with Charlene, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.